Arteta! What a It felt like a dispiriting day again on Saturday, but the good news is that Mikel Arteta has found the statistics to indicate that we're actually playing well. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. You know we are a podcast that is statistics-friendly. We like our data. In fact, Scott will be on down the line at the end of the pod to give us some statistics. Um, and now, as a statistics-friendly podcast, uh, we are in simpatico with our coach who has delivered a message that, yes, the statistics are clear. Arsenal should be winning all the football. And uh, if you're losing all the football, at least point to statistics that say you should be winning all the football. And that's what he's done. We'll get to those quotes. We'll get to uh, another defeat where it leaves us and a little bit about the kind of football we played. I'm sure we will focus on some individual performances, no doubt. Willian, we shall cast our eye on you, my friend. Have no fear, but maybe one or two others as well. And here to do that with me is Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hey, hello, hello. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woo-hoo. And Tim, you find him on Twitter. So, hello, Tim. Hello there. Tim, I'm wondering if you're having any regrets. I've done some things uh, on weekends that sometimes I wake up on a Monday feeling pretty dirty and regretful about. And uh, in the Instant Reaction pod, you did go in pretty hard on Willian. And I'm wondering if you have any regrets with your Brazilian uh, linkage there. I mean, are you, are you feeling any regret about that? Or you feel you feel good about that choice? No, no, I, f- I feel very good about that choice. Thank good. you very much. Yeah, good. Just want to make sure because I loved it. Um, so we will get to that. There, there's a lot to get to here. And I think, um, Paul, I'll start with you because I, I think the everybody's looking to see if Arteta has a way out of this. Um, if he can mm-hmm. just find a way out. And you went pretty strong on the idea that you know, the Southampton game, the draw was fine because we just needed to stop the rot. Totally fine. I'm not trying to relitigate that because I, I definitely agree that we needed to just not lose. But then on the back of that, I think he he had to find a way to try to change things, to try to arrest the slide. Now, obviously, losing Aubameyang doesn't help. Having some suspensions doesn't help. His hand was forced a little bit. I'm curious um, what you think about the players he chose. I mean... He, he he doesn't have a lot of players he can rely on right now, but he did pick Willian. He he did choose to go with Nketiah over Lacazette. Um, you know, Ceballos, Elneny, midfield, I think, you know, there's going to be some questions to be asked there. So do you think he he did the best he could with what was available, or would you have liked to see him try something even a little more uh, radical? I think his midfield was probably a best available, um, not the pairing you want, <clears throat> but not a lot of choices. Uh, the William thing is perplexing. Uh, I mean, I get that he kind of he was maybe in pretty strongly for him in the summer, and maybe William cost us a lot of money. Um, maybe, maybe there was a lot of skin in the game from him and Edu on the William uh, purchase. Um, that they can't back away from easily because on footballing terms, uh, he's been bad. The only, I mean, the good thing about this perf- performance was it was very clarifying. It wasn't his usual mediocrity. I mean, he took it to new depths. So he's really hung him, you know, for a guy who was in the, the media for having uh, purportedly gone to Edu with Luis to 
expressed their concerns over the manager. This was not the game you followed that up with. Mm. Um, like if you have to pick, you know, Mikel's got his own his own issues about digging a hole deeper. But if if to if you have to pick between Arteta and Willian based on that game, I mean, holy shit, uh, Willian was a disgrace. Uh, as I kind of said before, if you're not playing well or you're not going to play well, at least make it look like you try. It's not hard to make it look like you're trying in a football match. Um, but maybe there are other explanations for it. But, mm. but it's just confounding. The Enketia versus Lacazette thing, I don't really get that. Um, it's not like... It, this. The other interesting thing about this game was I, I haven't been that... Close, following that closely on Twitter, and maybe lots of people have been talking about this, but it almost seemed like a. It became slowly a, a, a Freddie Lundberg homage to youth, where like more and more, it was almost like Arteta. This was the game Arteta signaled something. I don't know what he was signaling, but more and more of our young players came on to replace older players, and it was like a Freddie Lundberg selection. Well, but with but no, like, look on the yeah. bench. What was he going to bring on? Mustafi, Cedric, Kolasinac? I mean, he brought on Lacazette, yeah. the only senior yeah. attacking player <laughs> he, bring, he had. He brings... <laughs> a, I mean, I mean, there's logic to it, but do you know what I mean? It just... Did, did anybody else think, man, youth product after youth product, it, is he trying to signal... Is it a white flag or is it him saying, hey, look, I'm pivoting. Everything else has turned to shit. But for those who wanted Project Youth or... I, uh, I, I don't... How do you see that? Because, I, I mean, he started with old people, with the exception yeah. of Enkedia over Lacazette, which is not saying he hasn't done a lot. And then he brings Lacazette on. And the only other players he has that can chase a game are those young players, Martinelli and Willock. Like, he literally doesn't have another senior player on the bench who plays in the attacking half, unless you want to count Bellerin. Yeah. Sure, but we ended up having a lot of... Between Maitland-Niles and Saka and... That's fair, yeah. It, you know, we ended up with a lot... It just... It just kind of struck me, man, there's a lot of young players on here, which I wasn't against at all, but I was just, I was wondering circumstances. I think it's a yeah. reminder of just how top and tail our squad is, that we've got 30-year-olds yeah. and we've got 20-year-olds. And aside from Pepe, we don't have another player worth a damn who's 24. You know, I mean, in the attacking yeah. half, we've got Kieran Tierney and we have uh, Gabriel and stuff like that. Um but Clive, I mean, the the fact of the matter is this is who he picked. And, you know, I, I, I think that Enkedia won is a head scratcher. I mean, at this point for me, I'm prepared to say he should have been sold last summer and that we've we've let him overstay his abilities. But even setting that aside, a nice backup striker. But Lacazette has actually put in some decent shifts lately and whatever his limitations are, he's ready to lead a line in the Premier League in a way that I don't think Enkedia is. Um, so I thought that was a weird selection. I think the Willian selection is, you know, just sort of being pot committed, right? Chasing your money on, on a player that you went big for in the summer. But if you look at the way we played in the first half, I still can't get away from the fact that the midfield is everything. Now you look at that Everton team, Decore and Davies aren't going to storm Europe as a as a midfield too. Sigurdsson is a 50 million pound mistake that they're finding ways to get some use out of, but not very good. They are led by a very talented striker in Calvert-Lewin and a very talented wide forward in Richarlison, and that is basically their team. That's basically what they've got. Um, the fact that we weren't able to get any joy in midfield against DeCorey and Davies, I think, tells you something about El Elneny and Ceballos and just how bad we are in midfield. I, I posted our first half pass map, and I hope people will just take a, a minute to look at it, even if you've never read those things. 
I mean, you're going to see we didn't play a midfield pass in the attacking half in the first half. So, I mean, for you, Clive, as much as we have our players we like to pick on, Willian, you know, um, Lacazette when he's playing, certainly, uh, you know, we, we like to pick on Shaq at times, but like the story of this game, like so many games this season for me, is once again a midfield that cannot do a damned thing. Um, and 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 maybe we'll have a talk about mediocrity and how you wind up accepting mediocrity over over a number of seasons. But do do you share my concern that the midfield is a extremely pressing problem? You've you've, you've known me a while. What do you think? I think yes. I think you're wishing Thomas Party was not was not uh, rushed back for the Spurs game. Yeah, I'm wishing we had about two of him really, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the that's the issue that we have. Somebody that. Walks on the pitch and says, "Okay, this is my area. Where's my man? Oh, there he is. All right, you're you're dead. All right, and, uh, it's that simple. Not people that stand next to centre backs or stand in lines where they can't receive the ball or stand so deep they just can't affect the other team. No sort of thought process about, um, you know, dominate. You can dominate a space in in many different ways. Right. First of all, you got to stand in it. That that'd be nice. Do you know what I mean? Uh, get your starting position right." But you can you can create a rhythm. So you can create like um, you know, connections and triangles and get the ball. And when people move towards you, you pop it. And you, then you move beyond them and go around the other side. And you pop it again. And you try to create relationships over the pitch. You just play hand grenades, hand grenades all around the pitch. Can I create? Can I create a triangle? Can I create a triangle? Answer the mids don't do that very often. And um, and they just basically stand in the wrong spaces. And and our centre backs allow them to do it, by the way, because they're scared. They're not too quick. They like to see the, the comfort of bodies in front of them. I said before, you know, they should get off their toes, get out there, go and engage, go and fight the game, because then you can go the other side of them into your zone, Elliot. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But if you're, always, if you're always in front of our centre-backs, then guess what? You're going to receive the ball in nice, comfortable areas. You're going to pass the ball. You're going to pass the ball to another player in comfortable space. But maybe you need to do that 15, 20 yards further up the pitch, and, that, and that's why you get the first half pass back that, you're, that you sent out earlier. Mm. It's just a lack of engagement. You've heard me say it. I mean, I'm not saying anything that you guys don't agree with. We don't engage. We take and play the game that we like to play, not the game that will hurt the opposition. We just don't do it enough. We haven't got the bravery. We haven't got the technical security. We haven't got the physicality to recover. We can't step past people very often. And when we do, we get caught. Right? So, And so if we do step somebody, we have to get rid of it straight away. If the pass isn't there, we get caught. Right, so, and so I was looking at where Tobias was, for example, in this game, and when he felt he wanted to connect, so he, he would choose the right-hand side quite high up to connect and create triangles. Well, why do that? Do your job in the centre of the pitch. Make sure we're controlling the game from them. Push people up. Push people back. Get us playing. Get us playing forward. Dominate the ball. Dominate your man. Make people move. Make people come and get you. Make people jump out, come and get you. If you're playing 20, 30 yards away, well, no problem, mate. I'll stand there in my four centre backs, get them on the old rope, look around, say, ha, ah, what they got? Eddie and Ketia, 20, 20 years of age, nice, bright young player, quite sharp, but he needs sharp movement around him. He needs to be in the box. He's nowhere near the box, outside the box, he's just an average footballer. Inside the box, he's quite sharp. Don't let him in our box. They're smashing, pushing back. Let's get up there, arm in the back, push him out. They said the mid's not going to run past, past us. <clears throat> Excuse me, don't worry. They're, they're not going to run past us. So when we go tight to him, we haven't got to worry about filling our hole again because no one's going to run in behind. Do you see what I mean? Only one running behind is a 19-year-old kid. And so we're very easy to defend against. And 
I always look at the central midfield area because that is the heart of your team. Interior, exterior, the brains, the power, the technical ability, that's the heart of the team. And everything else rocks around that, that heart, that square, that block. And it's just not there. There's no, there's nothing there. There's nothing. And the most worrying thing is, guys, I mean, we normally we do these discussions. We say, well, then he should be playing. <laughs> that last line, we mm. can't really have it. So it feels a bit futile. It's analysis because we all know the answers. There's one answer and the other answers are not in the squad. And I don't mention that bloke who got sent off the other day, but there we go. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, the reality is that I thought we played okay in the second half. And once again, it's a game we win on XG like the Burnley game and don't get a result. But outshot 7-3 to three in the first half. They go to halftime with a lead and that was game over for them. They closed up shop and they didn't play. Three shots and a half, and one of them's a penalty. And, you know, there was just no intent on, on on their part to really play in the second half. And I don't think they're very good. And, you know, they sort of comfortably saw it out. You know, I, I mean, we took 10 shots in the second half. They took two. But, you know, were they were they really trying? I, you know, I, I mean, I, th- I think if you look at the first half and second half pass maps, what you see, again, is just a, you know, an Everton team that, that was comfortable sitting back. And, I mean, Tim... I'm not going to do the Willian thing with you because you got it off your chest, and I, you know, I, I don't think you want to sort of repeat the rant. Um, so I, I do want to sort of ask you about mediocrity in general. You know, I watched this team in the first half, and I just thought, as much as I am frustrated with Arteta, and as much as I think at this point he probably has to move on because, because <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. there was just so much mediocrity on that pitch, and. I think mediocrity in football is kind of like the boiling frog analogy where, you know, if you put a frog into boiling water, he hops out. But if you put a frog into room temperature water and turn it up till it boils, he'll boil to death in the pot. And we're boiling to death in the pot because we weren't willing to make hard choices because Mohamed Elneny is still here, because Eddie Nketiah is starting games for Arsenal, because Rob Holding isn't at Newcastle. Because And by the way, Rob Holding was not the problem in this game. But like you see my point, right? That Willian mm-hmm. is a guy at 32 years old that we felt we had to go out and get in the transfer market because Danny Ceballos is a guy we felt we had to prioritize reloaning. And I, you know, I get why we did that, but it's because we didn't do other things in our midfield. And like on and on and on throughout this team, there's just mediocrity. And, and then the guys coming in off the bench are either... Guys, we really hope make it from the academy or guys in Lacazette who probably should just about have moved on also. So, like, do you think that part of the problem is just that we always want to, you know, we're always willing. What's funny to me, Tim, is collectively as a fan group, we're always willing to say the squad's shit. That's the problem. It's not our tennis fault. The squad's mm-hmm. shit. But individually, when it's time to say a specific player is shit or should move on, and well, Eddie and Kenny is fine. Let's give him a little, you know what? Lacazette's putting in a shit. Oh, well, Elneny has an engine. You know what I mean? That we that we find the excuse for why they might be all right. So do you think yeah. that this this just sort of acceptance of a declining standard, keeping players around too long who showed they couldn't reach the level we need and recruiting players that, you know, don't give us a ceiling, that that, that acceptance of mediocrity over time has led to this, a team that you put out on the pitch and you look at it and you say, that's kind of a 15th place team you're putting out. Yeah, yeah. When I looked at the two starting lineups, you know, you look at it and you think Everton's is better than ours. Um, yeah you know you look at it and, and still think, not yeah. great by the way <laughs> yeah no exactly and uh, they were missing hammers they were missing alan who's been a really big part of their team this season but i looked at it and i still thought yeah they're they're starting lineups better than ours is um and and you know to your point about um how 
you know we're we're very scathing collectively but perhaps not individually i I think what we tend to do individually is that we will agree on one player or two players you know um probably at the moment Xhaka and willian um are the ones that that like and you know look i'm not excusing myself from this i i not really that taken with either of them either but you know Xhaka and Willian that, those are the ones everyone will put the boot in on those but mm. um you know you, you start to mention other players and it's like mm. or if you say you ask the question about Bern Leno you know is he really a top class goalkeeper again not saying he's the problem but is he really like a top class goalkeeper I, I think people would feel very defensive a lot of people anyway would feel quite defensive if you asked that question and I, I think it's quite a valid question mm. um, certainly at least worth considering um, so so yes it, essentially what we've been doing is, is like loss chasing um, for years and years now um, for well Certainly since at least the last year of, of Arsene Menger's reign, we've been lost chasing. We've been, um, you know, throwing our shirt on the poker table, throwing the car keys on the poker table. And it's just when, when you get, it's very difficult to break that cycle once you start making all these short termist decisions. And, and yeah, and so, and some of them are just ludicrous by the way. So like, um, like Willian, like Willian is not a bad player. Mm. Um, neither Cedric Suarez really he's not a disaster area none of these players are bad for the record (laughs) you know it depends on your level no and (laughs) they should be better than this right yeah precisely precisely like they don't fit together and all of that but but they're better than this I I think one of the um, just I guess on a slight tangent one one of the things I wrote about this last week bringing in older players to be squad players is, is a real nonsense. You should not do that. Like I, I think in general, the way we use our Academy players is good and how we should be using them. We should be kind of using them in squad roles, plugging them in 20 minute sub appearances. Um, we should have a better quality of squad player. We can't at the moment cause we've got, um, you know, what, what Clive refers to as the kind of the, <laughs> the, the COVID lot, um, you know, Mustafi, Kalas, and actually we can't move on, so they're taking up places. But, you know, it, if you sign someone like Cedric or someone like Willian, if you sign players like that onto big contracts into their, into their like, mid-30s, particularly someone like Cedric, if you're signing someone who at the age of 29 is happy with being a squad player, you will never move them because what they're doing is they're pension planning right if if you're bringing someone like cedric in and saying mm, we've actually already got two right backs here and you're like you're 29 and you lost your place in the portugal squad recently um you know what is that player's motivation really that player is thinking fuck me i'm getting a four year contract off arsenal into my mid into until i'm 33 brilliant that's pension planning willian pension planning um you know it's it, like, like i guess david louise is something different because those were two one-year deals mm. i think that's slightly different maybe because you know they're ostensibly playing for their next deal but but all of these kind of bad decisions have just got more and more and more bad decisions and and yes absolutely that you can see the impact of that um and what's also happening as a result is that we're keeping players for far too long as well so someone like lacazette um, for example, who, who, to be fair, I think in a in a normal transfer market would have gone um, during the summer. Um, Arsenal are making no attempt to renew him, which 
tells you everything they actually think about him, but they they can't shift him due to um, you know due to the economic impact of COVID at the moment, and and that's I guess kind of unfortunate. Um, but but yeah, absolutely, it's it's all just um, lots and lots of bad decisions, and and yeah, and that what happens then is you keep getting into a short and, and we're in a short term world again now because we're actually in a relegation battle and that means to your point you do stuff like you keep El Nenny even though he's come back on loan from Besiktas um, which was you know probably his level and but but we kind of I, I, I still understand in isolation why we kept him because we don't actually have that many central midfielders. We don't really, apart from Partey, don't really have any good ones, but we're actually low, literally low on numbers there. So we do the, the year loan for Sabios again. We do, you know, it's it's like it's it's making ends meet, right? That's that's kind of what we're doing squad wise. Um, and and that's that's just yeah that's a symptom of of several years of of poor decision making. Yeah, and then you're back to new a corner because you're putting out a team that is in fifteenth because it belongs there. I mean, I sort of disagree with you and Paul that these players are better than this. Um, I don't agree that they are. I don't think Eddie Nketiah will wind up at a club that's above fifteenth in the Premier League. I don't. I don't think that's where his career is headed. Um, not because I don't like the guy. I just I don't think he will. And you know, if I... No, but he's, he's mm-hmm. the choice striker. Nobody started so, this game, I'm saying. You know. you know what I mean? Like, I'm saying the team that was yeah, out on the yeah, pitch. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think Mohamed Elneny will be uh, yeah, yeah. playing his football somewhere lower than 15th in the Premier League. I think the same is true of Rob Holding. I think the same is true of Eddie Nketiah. I think the same is William should be retired. Um, I think, you know, Danny Ceballos will probably wind up spending his career bottom half of, the, of La Liga. You know, so, I mean, and then you look and you say, how is this team 15th? And you say, well, you know, I, I tend to think... That football is a, a strong link sport, not a weak link sport. Name the players that were on that pitch for Arsenal that can win you a game, that are dominating players. We think Pepe has that talent. We think Saka does, but he's a teenager. The rest are mediocre. Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison were enough to beat us. They didn't even really have to do much. They were enough to beat us. Two mediocre teams, their quality shined and ours didn't. Um, you know, Mohamed Elneny completed 46 of his 48 passes. I think 31 of them were to defenders. He has nothing about him. Could we have tried Maitland-Niles in midfield and Bellerin on, you know, at fullback so that he could attack more? I, I don't know. I mean, are, is it time to stop playing mediocre players in the hopes that you can catch lightning in a bottle with someone? I don't know. But, Paul, I mean, we, we get to the second half and, and we're behind again and they do sit in and I did think we created a bit more and we were a bit more dangerous. I mean, obviously the the one thing of note that happens in that second half is that Martinelli comes on. And I want to just touch on this quickly. I am nervous that one of the big problems at Arsenal right now is there's no one minding the long term. Mikel Arteta is the most powerful man at the club and Mikel Arteta has a right now problem, not a next season problem, not a five seasons from now problem. A guy with a right now problem is tempted to say, Martinelli, please save me. A guy with a long-term time horizon might say, Martinelli, you're not playing for the first team till late January. We're not going to give you more than 30 minutes this whole season. You know, I mean, per game, because we, you know, we we want you to be the future at this club, and you're coming back from an injury that can literally end careers. So, where do you stand on the Martinelli thing in terms of the the danger of him being integrated because the fans want to see him and the coach has a right now problem versus right now not really mattering at Arsenal anymore and needing to have someone keeping an eye on tomorrow. 
Yeah, I think it's a real danger, especially as, well, we've seen what happened with party, and that was before we found this new low that we're at at the moment. So manager and club are under even greater pressure, and the the well-being and future of Martinelli versus the survival of manager, executives, and if you want to call it club, at least in the short term, um, you know, the, that's a very uneven balance and I think we we know which one would win out there when push comes to shove especially after uh, Mikel has started to talk more and more like my crazy ex-girlfriend um, w- when interviewed so he doesn't see he's Paul, starting I, I need to, to get, stop you uh, yeah. I, I want to be clear in that relationship you were the crazy one <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> you're the crazy ex-boyfriend <laughs> Yes, anyway. indeed. Okay, well, sorry. in my analogy, I wasn't. Fair enough. <laughs> and it's my my analogy. Okay. You're getting confused with my actual relationship. It's uh, totally it, different. It. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's it, it's to the point where I'm considering texting Mikel Arteta, new phone who dis. I mean, he's, <laughs> he, he's making less and less sense every time he talks. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in mm-hmm. a little bit. But he does not reflect a calm state of mind. Uh, I know we'll talk about the stats comment, but well, I'm yeah. equally concerned about the victim uh, comment that he wants players who will fight versus victims. And my concern with that is I'm not sure I like the terminology in, in terms of what that reflects. It's almost kind of that, it, like the word victim, well, who... Does he think he might be a victim here too? Uh, it's beginning to feel like he thinks he is. But in using the word victim, when you're talking about your player squad performances that have gone on, that's dangerously close to the finger pointing blaming game. And I don't think that ends well. And we, we know there are divisions and uh, meetings between the team and finger pointing and stuff. And that can be very cathartic that can be a release that can lead to alignment but it can also go tits up quickly and probably goes that way more than the other so i'm worried about how martinelli is used um uh, and i'm worried that that uh, there's anybody here that there's a grown-up in the room i, I kind of talked before I, I have this theory that what we need to do is sign not a new manager though i'm not against that uh or or a new bunch of players, though. If if somebody, if a grown-up in the room spots the right player, sure, why not? What we need is a czar of football, and I use that term because I don't really care what he's called. I care what he does. It doesn't matter what is what's on his business card. We can keep Edu. Um, we just need to bring in somebody above all of them who knows what the fuck he's doing. Because otherwise you're left with Vinay, seems like a nice chap. Edu, who I think seems like a nice chap. On the other hand, we have lots of troubling stuff that has come in and around him from his time with Raul and shortly after Raul left. That gives us concern. And we've Mikel, who's floundering, seems like a bright chap. Uh, we all have an emotional connection to him, but so what? Neither, none of the people in the room know what they're doing. And Tim Lewis is a lawyer uh, and a good set of eyes, but more of a veto than a doer. 
So he might stop us doing really dumb things from here, improprietous, if that's a word, things, wrong things, inappropriate Mm. things. It doesn't mean he can give us football direction. And until we get, you know, we'll use the term Ralph Rangnick, uh, until we get somebody who's done this kinds of stuff before and and has a foot between uh, manage uh, from a football operation standpoint, knows what's right and what's wrong. What's a mistake? What we can we have so little money, time, budget, uh, cycles to make mistakes from here on in. We need somebody with the sure touch, mm. and and, it, and it's the old justice must be seen to be done as well as done. So it needs to be somebody that immediately has credibility. Yeah, um, I agree so with that. ability is one mm. thing. Like we get somebody unknown. But but it also but that doesn't quite do it for us because they need the immediate credibility that people snap to and say, oh, OK, let's let's all align behind this vision quickly. Yeah. And you know what's crazy to me? We we had the Arsene Wenger model, the sort of single point of failure, one guy doing mm-hmm. everything model. And to Arsene's credit, I mean, with so many years in the game and such an immense football mind, like. He kept us relevant and near the top for a long time doing it that way until eventually the weight of doing all those jobs versus smarter, more efficient clubs who had specialists doing those jobs. He just couldn't keep up with it. We've now gone back to the Arsene Wenger model, except for the guy in his 30s in his first coaching job. It's insanity. And as much as I am Arteta out now, if we got a Manchi or a Ragnick or someone in who really knew what they were doing and we sacked Adu and we sacked V9 and we brought in guys above them and we brought in a you know an, an, a chief scout with an analytics background and those guys said, we actually think Arteta's got something about him and we want to hold on to him for a little while longer. I'd be totally behind that because I would trust that Arteta could focus on the coaching and that maybe there's still something there. That's exactly there right. And that the club could start to structure itself in a healthy way. But while I, I Arteta feel the is same manager, way about Edu. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the no, same's true of Edu. God. Hang on, hang on. No, no, you haven't heard my point yet. Sorry, okay, Edu. You're already sorry. saying no. I sorry, just said I'm the sorry, word sorry. Edu. <laughs> it I, triggered the hell out of me, sorry. I, right. I said, I feel the same way about Edu and Vinay. I don't know if they're any good, and the reason I don't know if they're any good is because there's nobody above them that I trust. Like, say you're, say we've got Rangnick above it, and we trust him, and he's okay with Edu. Then I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe there's something there. Because we haven't seen enough of Edu to work out if he's any good or not, right? True, but, it's all but, projection. But at some level, it's kind of like saying, I don't know if the CEO is any good because there's no one above him. Like, the buck has to stop somewhere, and I'm fine with it stopping there. And to be fair, I'm being triggered because Clive is typing into the chat things that are happening in real time that are yeah. not good. Yeah, like, but my point is, <laughs> these guys have only had in reality, a few months. We don't really fucking know, but we've nobody above them who trusts them. So, like, we have to base them on a small amount of evidence, and it's bad, right? The returns are bad on Edu and Arteta, and and you could actually say on Vinay, because where's the fucking leadership in all of this? Uh, you know, we had a nice interview where he talked about values. Now, it's hard... Uh, uh, I find it hard to just outright condemn them. I just... For almost everybody's emotional... Uh, um, uh, state. I'd prefer if they just brought in a czar of football, didn't fire anybody for six months. Like if, if Edu gets his nose out of joint, great. Well, fuck off then. But if not, and he sticks around, I don't really care. Keep them all, but put somebody over them who knows what they're doing and have Edu do some useful stuff. And like, I don't, you don't have you know to fire people. I, I like yeah. your lovely idea. And I'm going to live in a harsher world where I'd say we're 15th. The team is shit. 
The contracts suck. Everybody's fired. Yeah, yeah. All of you get out. All of you fuck off. Never come back. I'm that, putting people in who know what they're doing. More and chaotic, it might though. be I mean, unfair to, to Adu. I'm also fine with believing that Adu is tarred by the 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 taint of tainted by Raul. That the way he came in and the deals that were done under his watch. That taint. sometimes you're just yeah, yeah. Sometimes you're just you know. To be fair, having just said the word taint, I feel like I have to do the Manscaped ad now. I'm sorry, Clive, but I'm not going to get a better chance to pivot to Manscaped than having said taint. Because if... Oh, God, I'm going to do it, aren't I? If you have hair down there in that area and you want it gone, there's no better way to do it than the Lawnmower 3.0. I mean, look, how often am I going to... I wasn't even planning that. But you got to go to manscaped.com and use promo code ArsenalVision. You'll get 20% off and free shipping. Get the Lawnmower 3.0, and here's why. It's got a powerful rechargeable battery, so you can just leave it sitting out forever. It's got a beautiful stand. You can put it in that'll charge it. It works in the shower, so you can leave it there instead of your rusty razor that's doing all kinds of nasty things and bacteria are living. It's terrible. It's got ceramic blades, so it never nicks. It never pulls. It never tugs. And if you want to maybe get pulled or tugged or I don't know, whatever you want done to you, because there's no shaming here. There's no kink shaming. The best way to make that happen is to take a little personal care. And we need a little personal care right now with everything we've been through this year. But there is a finish line at sight. We're soon going to be socializing again. And wouldn't you like to, the next time you are socializing, be able to say to all of your friends who've wasted their time during their pandemic, you can drop your, dra- drop your pants and say, look at how clean I am down there. What have you guys been up to? Is that a thing people do? I don't remember what we do when we get together. Do we all drop our pants and compare who's, who's more her suit? In the private area? Maybe not. But you know what? You won't be. And that's the important thing. Use it on your eyebrows. Use it on your chest. Use it on your sideburns. But certainly use it in your downstairs area because it deserves to be treated properly, taken care of well. It will do it. No pulling, no tugging, no abrasions. Great battery life. Wet, dry. Use it however you want. The most important thing is that you do it because um, you, you just want to feel good. And it'll make us feel good because you'll get 20% off in free shipping if you use our promo code. So, manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Do it now. Okay, Clive, where were we? Oh, that's right, taint. Um, I think that uh, there is a taint on this squad from the way it has been built. And, I mean, you, you typed into the chat that we are now apparently opening talks with Rob Holding. I don't understand how a guy who was on his way to Newcastle is now being discussed for having another contract. I mean, I... I don't, I actually don't hate Rob Holding. You're low, probably lower on Rob Holding than I am. But I just think, again, it's all these dominoes of mediocrity that start to fall when you tie yourself to this. And one of the things that I think is a discussion point is the the Fuller and Balogun situation and in terms of how it relates to a lot of our squad decisions. Um, I don't know if Balogun's going to be a superstar, but I don't know how we're expected to try to keep him if we don't give him a path to first-team football. And this is the problem with sticking with players a little too long as you block the path of others. So, I mean, are you are you as concerned as I am about this mediocrity issue? I mean, the, the Rob Holding talks, um, you know, El Nenny being here for five years and and certainly, you know, Fuller and Balogun now seeming seemingly blocked. There were some rumors that went around that, that he's interested in Liverpool and they're interested in him. I mean, I don't know if there's any uh, credibility there with, with rumors like that. It sounds more like they're just being developed to trigger Arsenal fans than anything else. But, I mean, how do you feel about the way... We are we are managing opportunity right now, and and maybe you can talk a little bit about Balogun's situation versus like what's going on with Enkedia. Yeah, I think probably I'm I'm been down on this squad for quite a while actually. And, yes, you have. Um, and and I maybe people think I protect them management too much, but I make I just I don't care when it comes down to it. No one in this podcast is talking player solutions. 
they're over the age of 14. Do you know what I mean? It's like no one's talking about it. That means we've got bad players. Right? So, and it's just how, it's just where we've ended up. I mean, Rob Holding, been here, I don't know, five, six years. About to get another contract. He's at the contract number three. El Nenny been here since 2015. Contract, two contracts. One year to go in the summer. If people are here too long. They're here too long. And the holding thing, I find it quite, I know, by the way, he's captain. And by the way, he's playing his absolute heart out. He is he's one of the players playing above their skill level. Right? Absolutely. No issues with him. Nice lad. Good player. We got him for two mil. Moving on for 20. Brilliant. Great spot, Arsenal. Move on for 20. He's had a crucial in there. Very unfortunate because he was, he was progressing. But you know what? Move him on. No drama. That's what you do. That's what you do. You're going to get someone better. We're going to give him another contract. And that worries me, particularly when we got, you know, we hold up against Pelican and you think, crikey, what are we doing here? This guy could have some real potential and we're potentially letting him go. And there's two sides to every story. We don't know the full story. But from January the 1st, he can, he can sign for a, a club in Germany, really. And that is the rumour. And given his agent, Jaden Sancho's agent, I'll be concerned about that rumour. So that's you know, mediocrity. We've, we've done it with Shaka. We've done it with many, many others. If if we if we buy them, we we tend to compound it and then convince ourselves that these are the players that take us into into the future. And I just don't see us learning. And what Paul was talking about there about having a you know, an overseer that's built up because we don't quite trust the people that are there. They haven't got a track record we can rely on. So you get somebody else in who we know has got a track record of delivery, and we feel more comfortable. Now, I said that on Twitter a while ago, and people said to me, Clive, step back. Step back allows people to do their jobs. I'm thinking, yeah, I really want to step back. But then I see this holding thing come up today. Do you know what I mean? I really want to trust them. I don't quite trust them. I see Cedric. I see William. I see these things, and I don't like it. How can I pile my trust into them? And then I think to myself, well, let's get somebody else in. But then for me, I did a chat last week about culture and players, etc., and things that we're doing. Okay, getting people in. But what do you, what do we want to be? How do we want to play? Mm. Where on the pitch do we want to play? Do we want to be a team that's you know strength based or technical based or energy based? What do, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a counter attacking team? What do we want to be at the moment? The reason why we're all arguing is because we've all got different views on the game, and the game is evolving. At this moment in time, we actually need revolution. We don't need evolution. We need absolute revolution. See, I agree with that completely. Mm-hmm. We are talking. In some ways, it makes the manager more vulnerable. Faster than we even are, so we're just we're actually falling further and further behind with each move, each sideways move, each backwards Every, move. It's, in it's terms been going of, for, it's been going for years. It's been going yeah. for years. Just look around. You have to, you've heard me. How many times you heard me say the words competitive landscape? Mm. Look at your competitive landscape. Just look around you. When the, when the game starts and you look at the 11 players, and, and Tim spoke about it earlier, you're not quite sure if we're better than them. Never used to be the case. Never used to be the case. We're not sure. Southampton, okay, they're a bit more confident. I wasn't quite sure. Everton, I do think we were better, but we just were, were not great. Let's not talk about Leicester, shall we? I watched Leicester yesterday versus Spurs. You do, you, I hope you didn't see it. Because it's, you know, what they're doing with the price they're paying for their players... And they're re-signing star players, England players, no problem at all. We tried to take this in a forward. He said, no thanks. Red flag. No thanks. 
golden boots, cut of golden boots later. Didn't want to come here. What do we stand for? What do we represent? How do you want to play? It's not there. It's not clear. So what we so say, how do you build? So to... how do you build a team that way then? You know what I mean? You can't. Well, this is what. So you, so this is where this is it now. This is where the trust factor comes in. Do I trust these people? Forget who they are. Forget who they are. I don't care. I care about the club. And I look at the club. I think, who do I trust? And I'm not sure. I'm genuinely not sure. And that holding thing has bothered me more than anything because I'm hoping that we're learning. Well, I don't know if it's true or not. And again, like I say, it's nothing against the player. But if you think Rob Holding's the answer, then you don't understand why we're playing in our final third. You don't understand why we're so deep. You don't understand the modern game where it's going. We need centre-packs that can run, that can sprint, so allow us to play higher up so we can take the game to people, we can press people, we can move the ball, play with energy, re repeat sprint, move, technical security, energy, energy, energy. That's the game Leicester's playing. That's the game Liverpool's playing. That's the game Chelsea are developing towards. Mm. And we are a mile away. So work out what you want to be. I said, I was speaking on Discord today, I was talking about a player called Harvey Barnes. Right, bright, young, punchy player. He can run inside. He can play centre mid. He can play both sides. He's he can, he's a goal scorer. He can shoot. He can dribble. He can carry. Two way presser. You can do lots of things with him. Just brought into the England squad. Probably about twenty one. Spent some time at West Brom. I think they went down after he came out of there on loan. Nearly. I mean, he was that good. A bright, young, modern player. No one, no one in our club or our fan base talks about Harvey Barnes. We still want Guendouzi and Ozil. They are crap compared to him. Okay, the old Ozil wasn't. But the game is now Harvey Barnes's game. It's not Guendouzi's jogging game. It's not Tobias's game. When he stands next to them, he smashes them. He runs through them. He can, he can, he can paint the ball up to them and run around them. He's good technically. He's good physically. That's the type of type of player, forget the name, it's the type of players we need more of. Those types that can allow you to play different phases of football. So when teams push us back, we can spring. But when teams drop deep, we've got the ability to carry the ball up to people and take them <coughs> off and move blocks. So we're nowhere near the game. We need absolute revolution. I'm afraid that puts Edu and Arteta absolutely vulnerable because they need to understand what the revolution looks like. And I'm not sure at the moment. I, I hope they do. I just, I'm just not sure at the moment. And these results are depressing me so much. I'm not sure about much at the moment. Yeah. And, and look, you, the way you commit to mediocrity is not being ruthless in your pursuit of a ceiling. If you are not ruthless in your pursuit of your ceiling, you will find mediocrity by definition. And that's what we've done. We have been... In one of the least ruthless, you know, the funny thing about Arsene Wenger, and, and this is not about, oh, Arsene in, Arsene out. It's just about comparing how we used to operate. Arsene Wenger took pelters for not giving contracts out to 30-year-olds. And now you look at the way the game has evolved and no one wants 30-year-olds anymore. You know what I mean? Because you can't sell them. You can't, you know, you can't rely on them not to hit an age cliff. He was ahead of his time in a lot of thinking. The funny thing about it is Project Youth was a staggering success because at a time when we had no resources compared to our rivals, we sold pretty well, we bought pretty smartly, 
and we stayed near the top and relevant and in the knockout rounds of the Champions League. It was when we stopped doing that that we failed, when we decided to keep Ramsey to the end of his contract, keep Alexis till all we could get was a Mkhitaryan swap, re-sign Ozil at a time when we could have gotten $40 million to sell in the summer before, buy two strikers in consecutive windows instead of doing smart squad building. And then you wonder, you see us at a desperation pay £72 million for Pepe, when a team like Liverpool, who's already at the top of the heap, can have a little perspective and say, you know what? Let's go half of that for Diogo Jota. Jota however you say it. You know who I'm talking about. Because they're not panicking. They could have had Pepe ahead of us if that's what they wanted. But now they've got a guy who they're going to be able to sell for 70 million pounds in three seasons after he's given them a good run, four seasons, after he's replaced Salah for them or Sadio Mane for them, who they will also sell for 70 million pounds. Who are we going to sell for 70? You know, people keep saying to me, oh, you know, you can praise Liverpool all you want, but they got 140 million for Coutinho. Because they did. Because they were able to. What did we get for Ozil? Another contract. What did we get for Alexis? Mkhitaryan. What did we get for Ramsey? Zero. There's 150 million pounds of saleable asset there that we get zero for. And that's not an Arteta and Adu thing. It's just a club mediocrity, lack of ruthlessness in pursuit of a goal long-term, lack of a long-term plan. And so I do want to focus this back on the here and now, though, Tim. And um, I think the Arteta quotes are, are ones that we have to address. I think it's a bad mm. sign for a manager when he starts litigating his successes and failures in, in the press, in his press conferences, when he starts trying to make the argument for himself. You know what I mean? If you've got data mm-hmm. that says you should be winning the games, present it to your players. Say, look, guys, you know, I know the results are terrible, but we look at the data. You guys are getting unlucky. Our luck will come around. This will turn around. We just need to be patient. But outwardly to the fans, just say, we know the losses aren't acceptable. We're going to work on it. But that's not what he's doing yeah. now. He's, he's litigating it. And the quote is, when you look at the perspective of how we are losing football matches and how we are where we are, it's pretty incredible. Last year against Everton, we won the game with 25% chance of winning, supported by the stats. You win 3-2. Last weekend, it's 67% chance of winning. Any Premier League in history, a 9% of losing, and you lose. 3% against Burnley, and you lose. 7% against Spurs, and you lose. There's something else a part of that. It is not just the performance. It is something else that has to go our way, but at the moment, it doesn't. Now... I could take issue with his stats, and I will have Scott do that at the tail end of this podcast. (laughs) But the more important thing here, I think, is the litigating the argument in the press, the trying to make the argument. I think this is a really bad sign, right? Because that data can be helpful internally Mm. to tell you if you're doing things right and talk to your players about, you know, staying with it or if we have change. That's not the data you want to be bringing out to the fans, to the media when you're, you know, whatever it is, five losses from six or whatever the ridiculous run of form is, is it? Uh, yeah, five from six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, is do do you agree that litigating the issue in the press that way is is a bad sign, or do you think he has every right to want to yep. give the context? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a bad sign. Yes, and for someone who uh, and and to be fair, who is usually a, a good communicator, there there are a few things. Um, I know, and we've spoken about them on previous pods. There have been some red flags about things he said recently. You know that it's just maths if you put in you know, 50 crosses a game, whatever, whatever. Um, and and I like, I called it bullshitting after the Wolves game. I do think he's bullshitting um, a little bit. Um, I think he's floundering and he's, he's a little bit desperate. Um, I, I agree with you, Elliot. I think the way you deal with that, um, you know, outwardly to the fact, I mean, first of all, it's kind of an information overload and, 
you know, particularly like those numbers are, are not really given with a great deal of context. So it's difficult to know what to make of them. And so to most people, it just looks a bit mad. <laughs> um, except it's like, weird because like there's there's two audiences, right? There's the people who want to hear about stats in football and they're yep. all knowledgeable and they're going to think. Yeah, they're going to think it's utter bullshit. And then there's the people who absolutely don't want to hear managers talking about how they won it on stats. It's mm. like, so who's he talking to? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That, that's exactly it. Like, you know, it's you know the the shall we say like the stats community is a small one um, over the general piece anyway. Um, but yeah, exactly. Like, I can't think of anyone that really wants to hear that. I agree with you, Elliot. You play this with a straight bat. You say, look, we're trying some things. We think some things are going okay, but we need to sharpen up on, we'll keep working on it. Um, and, and to be fair, he has said things like that recently, like, you know, just stuff like, look, we're not here to feel sorry for ourselves. We need to work harder and that's it. And that that's kind of all you really need to say. I think if you turn up to a press conference like he did today with that stuff prepared as well, that I, again that's that's a bit of a red flag um to me and it's and it's just the thing is as well those um those stats don't really give you any context for game state and things like that and you know I, i'm sure we'll come on to to what extent and i think it's a very large extent but to what extent our team's just letting us play um when they go ahead because they know we won't lay a glove on them um and and things like that you know it's it's just um i think Look, every, every, not just every manager, everyone, when they're being criticised, deflects to some degree. It's just human nature. None of us sit there and go, ha, yeah, you're right, I'm shit, aren't I? Um, it, it's just not the way, it's just not what the way we are. We're all sensitive to criticism. And the, probably the best of us, the very best of us who are the best at accepting criticism, even immediately don't do it. It takes us a little while. We feel a bit sensitive. We feel sorry for ourselves. We lick our wounds. And then maybe we go, hmm, yeah, maybe there's some truth in that. And I need to work on that. Like nobody just goes, yep, you're right. I'm a dick. Um, but like, again, just just play it with a bit of a straight bat. Just say, look, we, we think there are some things we're doing well. There are obviously th some things we're not doing well. Um, you know, even if you say something like we believe in the process and all of that, that like that's better than than wheeling out, um, you know, some fairly incomprehensible stats, which I mean, really, like lo looking at my timeline, it's been a case of looking to the people who really know stats to, to say, like, what's he talking about there? Is is that XG? Is that like are these like club models and stuff? He's sort of like, you know, don't like don't don't bring that stuff out. It, it reminds me a bit of um I can't remember if it was um, it was maybe Sam Allardyce who got a bit sensitive about 10 years ago about um, people calling his team a long ball team. And he turned up to a press conference with handouts um, about about how many long balls Bolton were playing compared to like other Premier League teams. Mm. And, 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 you know, look, he, he, he probably had a point, right? But it's just like, like don't worry about that. Like, I, I guess what I'm trying to get to here is I think Arteta's worrying a bit too much maybe about his legacy um, and about how things look. Um, and, you know, for someone who, you know, obviously puts a lot of emphasis on communication and I've, I've never been as bothered by how managers communicate with the fans. I think it's of cerebral importance. I think it's much more how you communicate with your players. That's the important thing. I, I didn't really care that I couldn't 
make head nor tail of Unai Emery's press conferences. Like, it, it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, the, the only reason I worried about that was because I was thinking, oh, shit, like, is this is this what it's like in the dressing room? Like, I, I wonder, I'm curious, maybe he communicates very differently in the dressing room, but if this is how he communicates in the dressing room, like, I hope the players can understand him. I, I don't, you know, to me, it's of limited importance that, um, you know, Mikel Arteta does good press conferences. And as we're seeing now, that doesn't, that doesn't I, get you results. And yeah. I think, I think there's just too much emphasis on that. I agree. I, I, I think the issue though, Tim, as you've sort of rightly pointed out though, is, it's not the press con- it's not what he's saying it's what it says about him and the situation and he's had that data prepared for him to go out in front of the press and make the defense of how we're doing and how he's doing and that i think once the coach is trying to convince the public he's doing a better job rather than just yeah. getting down to the work of winning football. And I, I get it. I mean, what is getting down? What What is it really? It's not taking away from his work to go out and have that. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's pulling if focus. You're He's clearly worried about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, you, if you're confident in, quote unquote, the process, keep doing it and the results will speak for you eventually. If you really think that playing this way is going to get you. And, and look, this is Arsenal, right? We're not just talking about getting out, out of 15th place. You know, we're talking about getting up towards the top of the league. And obviously none of us think that that's a possibility, but that that is the aim at Arsenal is not to be comfortable mid-table. If if you believe in the process and you believe in that, then just be quiet about it. And the result, the results will, you know, the results will say everything in, in, in a few games time. And I agree with you. I think, I think he's he's reaching a bit and it's probably because he's not that confident that the results are going to come. Yeah, and and look, I have to admit, you guys, like, while everybody was really excited about Arteta, and and me too, to a certain extent, at the end of last season and and during some of that time, just because it was a nice change from Emery and and things looked like maybe they're heading the right direction, there were little things about how egocentric he was in his approach. I mean, the running onto the pitch screaming, I told you to believe in me, that, you know, that was a fun moment. People liked that. But there was also a part of me that's like, Wow, that's that's really egocentric. <laughs> you know, that's that's really self-confident. Good for him, but like and then you know the way he banished Ozil and the way he banished Kenduzi, like really powerful, big, strong moves, statements of ego, statements of of self-belief. But like you gotta back that up. If you're gonna be that egocentric and and that certain of yourself. When it starts to go badly and you haven't fostered a, coll- a collective culture and you fostered a very egocentric culture, that, that can be dangerous. And I, I sort of look at this guy now and I say, you know, you told everyone, believe in me. You told everybody, you, you know, the, the, the planets revolved around you at this club. And so, you know, you, you're, you got to take it on the chin now. And I, I don't know. I mean, um, he does seem like he's sort of floundering in the way he bristled at the, you know, the, the issue of crosses and stuff like that. I, I think... He wants to be written about positively. He wants to be seen as a a brilliant coach, as, of course, all of them do. But now that he's facing the first questions about his ability, you know, I think litigating it in the press is the wrong way to go. I, so, well, let's wind this down a little bit, but I, I don't want to cut Paul and Clive out of this. And I, I do want to make sure that we have a final word on the Willian thing. I've sort of saved it, kept our powder dry, but the Willian thing is a really big part of this. So... Um, Clive, I'll come to you in a moment on, on, on Arteta, but Paul, I just want to say like the irony of performances in football is that sometimes the narrative gets written early in a game and we don't revisit it later. 
Willian had one of his best performances for Arsenal late in this second half. Mm. <laughs> now, to be fair, it was when Everton were betting in, sitting back. He got to be more central. He was pulling the strings a little bit. He played some nice passes. I mean, I think we played the best football we've played all season in the five minutes of stoppage time because guess what? When the other team camps in and you can put eight guys on the edge of the box and really push them back, you can play some interesting football, and Willian was involved in that. But I can't escape the narrative that was written by his first half walking, disinterested, uninvolved, no ambition. And I, Paul, like for me, that first half looked like a guy, and I hate to lean so much in narrative, but I couldn't help watch it and think this guy wants his manager sacked. And I think it's interesting that there's rumors that Louise and Willian are, are leading an insurrection behind the scenes. Both of them started this game. Both of them were given a long time. How do you feel about the Willian performance and Arteta's unwillingness to take him off? Do you think that there's a fear factor there of pushing him to rebellion? Do you, I mean, Pepe coming off, Enkedia coming off, Willian staying on. I thought that was a big, strange call for a player who had spent the first half showing absolutely no interest in contributing to an Arsenal result. Yeah, look, it's a weird one that we continue to puzzle because it keeps going on. So the first thing is I have a, my first reaction to the Luis Willian story was not a, a positive one from in their regard. On the other hand, it'd be kind of weird if Willian and Luis didn't go to Edu and say, like, it, it didn't mean they went in, to him and said, we want him sacked, right? Mm. That's, that's one version of it. The other version is uh, when, when passed through Chinese whispers, the actual truth may have been they went to Edu because they're all Brazilian, and he got them into the club and said, this shit's fucked up. And if we don't address it, if the manager doesn't change this, that and the other, we're in trouble. That would be leadership. That would be experience if things are going wrong. So there's, you know, there's there's a spectrum of possibilities as to what that conversation was. Now, I think I just accidentally stepped into defending Willian a bit. Um, but th that's the challenge with these things. It's all like when things are in the shitter, then everything's bad. Well, you know, maybe maybe these conversations have to happen and they have to be release valves. And after you've done your finger pointing and shouting at each other in the dressing room and uh, the manager said this and you said that and you've dug into your positions, you need other like if you can't talk to the director of football about what you think's wrong and triangulate it. You know, it happens in families, right? You talk to your mother, your mother talks to your father and source things out between you and your father. Everybody talks to your mother. In, in many families, uh, secrets that should not be shared are shared through the mother and the mother mediates things. That should be the role of the director of football. Now, back to that performance here. Uh, that was a little aside. You know, there, these conversations, if we don't think the people talk to people, we're fucking deluded, especially three Brazilians in a club. They're going to be talking and they're going to be bitching. And they probably need, I mean, Arteta needs to be able to survive the fact that people have issues with what he's doing. So he just needs to start the good coaching and everything gets sorted out. The results too. He needs to survive to the 2nd of January. Party needs to get fit. Uh, we need to, you know, from a... if. If you're looking at it from his perspective, he needs to have his excuses. Aubameyang's out, this, that, the other, some bad luck. He needs to get to the 2nd of January. Some good news about the window. We get somebody in uh, who's more of a creative 
player. That gets him another month or two as we see how Partey and the new Awar plays out. Maybe we're actually better. Maybe just a, the fresh air of January kicks in and then people settle into the idea, well, let's just fucking settle in. The time to make the changes is is May, June time frame. Mm. Um, and, you know, if Pochettino pops up and he wants to, and he's available and whatever, sure, fucking move for it. But I, I don't know how we're going to find that manager who solves our problems unless we get lucky. If we get lucky and a Pochettino or a Brandon Rogers or, you know, whoever you're uh, singing and dancing, because he needs to be more than just a good manager. He needs to be a good manager that's proven, can can settle right in and people trust from the get go. There's not a lot of them around. Or is a Benitez who steps in for six months like he did at Chelsea. Somebody to get us to the summer. And that's kind of the scenario in which uh, we move forward in the next six months. Either Arteta gets a little lucky in the window and, and things tick along and we get to the summer and maybe we'll actually start to get good by then. Um, the Willian thing is just a massive fucking puzzle. Why does he persist with him? Maybe because he thinks he has to. Maybe because he looks at his options and he says, well, if this Willian thing doesn't work, I'm left with Pepe, who re- he really doesn't fucking believe in. Because, like, we may think Pepe is talented, but he won't play Arteta ball, whatever that is. He just won't. Uh, I mean, w- uh, I mentioned uh, the bit we saw in the Europa League game where... Like people were voting a man of the match and Arteta was going fucking nuts because he knew that Pepe can beat every player on that pitch mm. seven times. It doesn't translate into the Premier League and it doesn't translate into what he wants to do. So he knows he's stuck with Aubameyang, yeah. hopefully in a good way. And then it's he's got <laughs> Saka and then who's the third player? And he thinks if Willian doesn't click, he's kind of fucked. And maybe him and Edu went big with the board, with the crankies, and said, this is the guy. I, I know he was on a free, but frees are never free, as Kolasinac, right? We need a big fucking chunk of money for this guy. He kind of solves a lot of our issues, and maybe they're just on the hook for this guy. And then footballistically, he doesn't know how he's going to play. He's made it clear Martinelli... He's right in saying the expectations shouldn't be on Martinelli, but when he had Martinelli before, he he backed that up with his behavior. He didn't. He played him more early on than he did later on before the injury. Hmm. He's not going. He doesn't seem like a guy who's going to lean into those guys. He he was even somewhat reluctant about kind of leaning fully into Saka. Felt like he when he got a chance to back off that a little bit, he did. Hmm. So I just yeah. think he's going to trust experience and Willian, yeah. and he doesn't know who else. Yeah, sackable offense. Um, I mean, it, it just there's no explanation for it beyond you spent too much money on a 32 year old who now has a buddy in Louise and becomes a big personality in the dressing room. And you made you made a culture problem for yourself by bringing him in, and you made a squad problem for yourself, and you made a problem with with Pepe, and you made a problem with your young players who want to come through. And you know, I mean, it is for the people that say the squad is shit and it's not his fault. We have very limited exposure to Arteta's views on squad building, but what little exposure we have to it um, has been toxic and and damaging, and it's unfortunate. Clive, um, there's not a lot of meat left on the William bone, to be fair, but I I, I, I want to give you a whack at that and, and your feeling on, you know, again, I 
it's not that the guy should just never be used. I mean, you can't, the funny thing is, I don't believe in black and white situations like that in football very often. There's some. I don't think Williams should just be banished in the same way that I don't think that Genduzi or Ozil should have been to the extent that it was possible to go another direction. But I do think that the first half performance from Williams should have been a substitution at halftime and certainly should not have warranted him being the guy that stayed on the whole game. Um, do, do you have an explanation for that or a feeling about that? I mean, how disappointed are you when a guy who was screaming, I told you to believe in me on the pitch just a few months ago and now, you know, doesn't seem to have the courage of his convictions? Okay, well, the believe you me thing started from the doctor who's going to go to Liverpool, and he ended up staying because it was a conversation that we overheard. And this is why this is why I almost feel sorry for managers. Whatever they say, we throw back in their faces. Even the stuff they didn't even say to us, we just overheard on the mic. So uh, like, I'm um, with you, Clive. I think that's a private conversation. It might yeah, have been rash, but it like, wasn't him out well, on the. It wasn't him Mourinhoing out on the pitch. Yeah, I didn't think it was in a press conference saying, "Look, I told them all to believe in me, and I'm the king of the hill." He's like, just won the FA Cup for God's sake, you know. Literally within 20 seconds of the game, so that's neither here nor there, right? So the William thing, well. Let's, let's not go there, shall we? Um, the fact that our director of football shares an agent with a couple of players that are coming that are looking pretty pretty well off and are looking at properties in Dubai as we speak to spend the money that they're earning. That's a, that's a, an issue for... that has. I heard David Hornstein say something on Sky. This is a failure that has many fathers. And let's just leave it there, shall we? Right? And some of those fathers are not at the club. Right? So... Not going to bother talking about a player that's jogging around the pitch. Only two times he's done something is when he's played century, Sheffield United, and this game. I originally thought he was coming in to play 10. Um, but I thought it's 10 or 11, but certainly not 7, because our, our signing's out there. But guess where he's playing? <laughs> he's played on the right-hand side, so got that completely wrong. So I can't even justify it to myself anymore. I think on the stat stuff, I'm trying to, you know, trying to learn more about statistics just to sort of give myself a different perspective. I think it's really important that I, you know, I look at football in a a player way, a physical, psychological way, what a player does, how they mesh, balance attributes, that type of thing. That comes to me quite quickly. But statistical side, maybe you have to take a breath and have a look and see if there's any trends out there. And when a manager starts talking stats, did he put them me with it? Well. Numbers are, are king in the club. They really are. Those stats, he had them in his pocket within one minute of the of the game finishing. That's the first thing they do. They get a stat sheet into their phones, into their iPads. What have we done? Before they even go to the interview, they've got these numbers. They also adapt to prepare. It's how they live. It generally is how they live and how they can fix problems going forward. And stats are not always, you know, they're not always everything. You know, I was reading today that, Brighton at a higher XG than Liverpool and then Liverpool scored seven goals the other day and Brighton at a higher XG than them. Liverpool had eight shots on target, seven went in. What does that mean? I'm not saying Brighton are better than Liverpool. In the context of the game, Liverpool are incredibly efficient with Salah and Firmino, for example. And Brighton got a young kid called Connolly up front. You know, two foot three, great progression, good midfielders that can carry the ball. One of the midfielders I'd like in Basuma. Great midfielders and carry the ball. They get to the final third. They can't do anything. Football, you know, you can't look at the stats on its own. You've got to look at the context of the game. The Spurs game, you know what? I felt they gave us that. They said, you're crap. Try and break us down. Get past our big bodies. We couldn't. 
I thought Wolves didn't quite have the confidence to play us. They dropped away for different reasons, but they dropped away. I thought Everton, I thought they dropped away, but I thought this was probably the game where we actually played them a bit more. I don't think Everton can progress the ball. They got centre-halves at the back. They got crap centre midfielders. And they go front to back. We started to win the first ball and the second ball. Then we keep pushing them back. So if anything, the Everton game was a bit more of a reflection of a football match. But we were still doing it from a position where we were chasing the game. And so obviously there's a natural tendency when you're your opposition to play the scoreboard. That's what Everton did up to a certain respect. So Arteta's coming in. He's trying to find crumbs of comfort. You're trying to say that we're not as bad as we as we are. But when we were winning, we were talking about fine margins, weren't we? We mm. were talking about fine margins. We were talking about a lot of the wins being in the fact that Aubameyang was above his XG. So the wins were fine margins. And now, apart from the Villa game, in my opinion, and I may, I may be wrong without looking at all the numbers, and we saw the game, so we didn't feel positive when we watched them. But you could say a lot of the defeats, you look at the paperwork, are quite fine margins too. But we know... Our three departments are disconnected. We know our players are jogging around, hiding in passing lanes. We know our players look bereft of any confidence. There's no connectivity. There's no spark. There's very few smiles. We know all this. So whatever the paper says, it doesn't matter, mate. I'm looking at the green grass and I'm looking at people hiding. I'm looking at people feeling sorry for themselves, whether you call them victims or not. I'm looking at I can see it. And that needs to change, and he needs to get them going. And he's trying to, and if he doesn't get them going, he's toast. So I'm absolutely fine with him trying absolutely everything he can to get them going. I don't care what they feel like. They ain't got nothing. They ain't got nothing to stand on. They're not produced for ages. I don't care how they feel. Start doing it. Start doing it. Stop looking at your brochures. Start looking what's you're doing the last five minutes of the game and what you're going to do in the next game, what you're doing mm. next game after that, and start owning it. And so that's how I feel about it. So Arteta's in a situation now, he's in the washing machine, he's spinning around, whatever he says has little value because we've won one game in ten. But it doesn't matter. In the end, he has to get results and then we will look at him differently. But I am <laughs> i can't see the next one at the moment and that's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, I mean, the 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 thing that's hard, and Clive, I think you're good on this, is that like when things are this low, it, it's easy to think it'll always be this low. It's hard to see the turnaround coming. But like, I do think part of the problem for us is we go from crisis to crisis trying to turn things around in the short term, and that is part of the problem, right? Like, if we win the next game, this isn't fixed. No. If we win the next five games, this isn't fixed. This, there has to be at some point someone at the club who's realistic about the depth of the decline and the <laughs> length of... Like, here's the thing. We should just assume we, we're not going to be in Europe. There will be no European football for Arsenal next season. Probably no European football for Arsenal the season after that. Hopefully Europa League football the season after that. And probably Europa League football the season after that. And then maybe Champions League. That's five years from now. 
we should think we could be in the Champions League. And we should build a squad that can be in the Champions League five years from now. And let me tell you what, the problem with that is we've got a 31-year-old on 300,000 pounds a week who won't be here in five years. We've got a 27-year-old that we paid 50 million pounds for who is awesome, who's not going to take us to the Champions League because we won't get there while he's here. We've got a 32-year-old in Willian who's going to be here for three seasons soaking up huge wages who will not help us get to the Champions League. Like, this is the problem with doing, you know... If the argument for getting William in the summer was, we just need a guy who can do this for right now. Well, he's not just here for right now. He has a three-year contract. And so if the time horizon is five seasons, start acting like it. And if we keep acting like the time horizon is next window, then this is where we're going to wind up. So, Tim, you know, I mean, this leads to one last quick thing I want to get to because we're going to have to make a decision on someone like Hector Bellerin. We have three right backs at the club. Unfortunately, one of them is Cedric and we're committed to him. We have Ainsley Maitland-Niles. Now, I am a believer that Hector Bellerin is better than Ainsley Maitland-Niles. I'm sorry, I'll hold my hand up. I belong to that support group. But I'm intelligent enough to realize it doesn't matter what I think. If the club wants Maitland-Niles to be here long-term, they opted not to sell him in the summer. They had a good bid for him. They kept him. Great. Then you have to probably sell Bellerin, right? we got to monetize one of these two assets before that's destroyed again. So do you think... Maitland-Niles has made enough of an argument to be that guy and that we should move on from Bellerin. Do you think that Maitland-Niles' future maybe lies somewhere else on the pitch for us or at another club? How do you think the club should solve this? And is this the Cedric Bellerin-Maitland-Niles situation a really great microcosm, a great test case for the club being able to do what it needs to do to to move forward? Because this looks like stasis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. My own personal opinion is... um, I, I probably still prefer Bellerin um, over Maitland-Niles. I just think he can do a bit more. I do understand that Bellerin's been, um, you know, exposed defensively um, this year. I, I don't think that's entirely his fault. I think that's just, you know, our right-hand side is is a mess. Um, you know, <laughs> the absolute silver bullet for me would be to get rid of Cedric because I like the idea of having Bellerin and Maitland-Niles because they can do different things according to the the opponent and whoever you're you're facing and like like i liked the use of maitland niles in this game as i said on the instant reaction pod i like the fact that we went okay they've got richarlison on the left he's really really good we need a good one-on-one defender maitland niles in you go and then you know perhaps for another game it's better like like particularly with fullbacks such a demanding position i think that's fine and Prior to this point, we'd been guilty of overplaying Bellerin, of not having that back up there, and he got himself injured, and and it, and it was a long way back. Um, you know, the the well, it's not an elephant in the room because we we discuss it all the time. The the thing is Cedric, but yes, I think we do have to have to move on. Um, I, my my preference would really and and look, no no one is sacred to me. If we if we sell all three of them and get someone better, great, that's fine with me. Um, but I, I think I'd be more inclined to go with Bellerin just because I can. I think he can do a little bit more of what you'd want from a fullback at a big club. And Maitland Niles again. I, I kind of get why he didn't move on in the summer because uh, maybe in hindsight we should have done it. But I have to be honest. At the time when I heard that Wolves' offer was under twenty million, I was thinking, no, that's you know, he's he's worth more than that. Um, and I don't think we were necessarily incorrect. Um, I, I think maybe we just expected someone else to, you know, come up with an offer and, and they didn't. Um, but I guess like with Maitland-Niles, it's just the kind of sometimes he's in, sometimes he's out, sometimes he's completely frozen out. You don't see him for like six weeks and then all of a sudden he's back in. That, that, that side of it 
worries me quite a bit. Um, and, and maybe it's just that Maitland-Niles is a bit flaky. Maybe he has like a crap month at training and then he has a good one and he gets in. But but even so, at this point, if that's happening, you, you'd think Arteta would say, right, OK, you're not doing it all the time, ergo you're not really in the picture. Um, but, but I think Maitland-Niles is a, a perfectly saleable player. Um, you know, the, the fact that, well, the fact that he's English, um, which you could argue in the other direction is, is a good reason to keep him um, just because uh, Brexit and everything and, and probably incoming quota, like increased quotas on homegrown players. But I, I think, mate, I, I do think this summer just gone would have been, would just would have been the perfect time just to say, okay, thank you. You've done three or four seasons, really valuable role for us. Lovely. We didn't have to spend like 25 million on a, on a crap backup. You've done that. We've like raised your value a little bit. Time to move on, go to Wolves. We'll invest in someone else. Um, I'd sooner it wasn't Cedric, but there you go. That's, he's twenty three now. I mean, it's yeah, it's kind of time to commit to him or move on. You know, he's not yeah, he's not a kid. Yeah, Ex- exactly, exactly. Um, and you know, again, mate, I, I think in a normal market, he probably would have gone in the summer, and the cup final would have been. Uh, you know, thanks very much. You've done a grand job here, but we're not going to play like this all the time. And you know, we need to move on. Um, but yes, ab- absolutely. Um, and, and uh, like I've heard, I guess the reasoning for you know Arsenal thought that Maitland Niles was on his way out, and so they got Cedric in because um, they suspected Maitland Niles would go, and things changed, and maybe they were punished for being proactive. I, I just don't buy it. And um, I'm sorry, the agent thing with Cedric stinks absolutely stinks it's um it's it's just a mad coincidence isn't it that um all the all of the kia players we're getting are all like are all on their last big contracts thanks thanks to us um you know you, you for me you can't divorce those things and we also have to look at the fact that Raul Sanyehi um quote unquote left and there were reasons for that there were reasons that he left after a non you know, a few weeks after a non-exec director comes in. And so, you know, you can but speculate, but there are some red flags there. Um, but but yes, like, absolutely. And I think this, I think, you know, I spoke about the Inketi and Balogun situation, which is an open goal for Arsenal, where they've got a couple of good years out of Inketia. Thanks for that. We used to pay 17 million for players like Lucas Perez to do what you did. You've done it brilliant time to move on we're going to give Balogun your minutes now here's a new contract for Balogun and and we're even messing that up so they're probably both going to run out of contracts mm. and we're going to get the runaround from Eddie Nketiah's agent in the summer and so like all of this is just like um you know again like I said at the outset of the, of the pod just symptoms of confused thinking and we we are going to have to eventually you know, kill some of our darlings. Um, we are going to have to move on from them. We are going to have to look at players who, you know, who, who, who might do a job in the medium term, but not the long term. Um, you know, and I've, I've said this about Liverpool before that, you know, Klopp, I, I almost feel like Klopp drew up a list of, right, these guys, Benteke, you know, no out straight away. You can't play like I want to play. Lalana we probably want to upgrade you. You're not the problem right now. We'll keep you for two, you know, two to three years and then we'll gently pack you off. Thank you very much. And then there's guys. Yep. We are absolutely committed to you. You can absolutely play the way I want to play. And and I I don't feel like there's that kind of list. 
um, at Arsenal at the moment. I might be wrong, but I don't feel like there's a, mm, Xhaka will keep you for a year or two, will keep you for a year or two. You're gone. You're, you know, Homer Simpson style. You're cut, you're cut, you're cut. And, and it, I guess one of my biggest issues with Arteta as well is not is not just the results. What, what you're looking at with Arsenal is we're coming to a clinch point with a lot of contracts that are going to be up in the summer. You know, there is a rebuild in the post, whether we want to do one or not. Um, I'm, I'm sure we do want to do one, but by, you know, there have to be five or six players bought um, in the summer. And so the question of this job now is who do you trust with the rebuild? Who do you trust to make those five or six signings so for players who are going to be on your books for the next three or four years minimum? And for me, Arteta has not totally you know Arteta Edu whoever's making the decisions we're told they made them together has not totally impressed with the the Willian and Cedric stuff in my book I would not let this club spend one pound in January not one pound sell do not buy replace the people who are making that decision and let them spend in the summer but if you let people who do not have the ability to see the right time horizon and buy the right players, spend more money. You just further commit to having to unwind this project over a longer period. Clive, I know you wanted to sort of finish up on that squad building thing, and then I, I'm i going to just give you my manifesto in under 60 seconds and we can get out of here. So so you want to add on to the no, that issue? Not massively. I, I, think, I didn't realize this until I came on the podcast, but, you know, Obviously, I've been talking about blowing this squad up for a couple of years now, and the moment's here, right? So we can't we can't refuse it this time. So the path is clear. Um, but what I hadn't realised, maybe so until tonight, is this is a revolution moment, not just a change to squad. But this is a revolution about catching up to the modern game, and that's made me sort of less confident about our current regime. Because I'm not sure they're revolutionists. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know enough. Yeah, I will say this: we don't know enough. These are the people that are telling us a long time ago that we've got a long way to go. So a part of me says, "Okay, let's give them a chance." And I, I see that thing today, and I just think, you know what? I don't trust them. I don't trust them, and and that's the issue. And we're so bereft of executives. I look at the club and I say to myself, you know, which one, which one, is there anybody that I trust? Is there anybody that I trust to, is there anybody that can see us for who we are? Is there anybody that can see the modern game and where we need to go? Is anybody looking around our competitors and seeing what they're doing and copying them? They've copied us and gone past us. You know, I'm looking at some Swiss Ramble stuff today. I'm looking at Leicester's spend over the last five years compared to ours. It's not right. Liverpool spent some of the money to us. It's just not right. We're just throwing money away. We're inefficient spend. And we're still doing it. And we're still giving people far too much wages. And it's not right. It's a club thing. We can fire, We can decide who we want to fire. We want to do that. Let's fire everybody. Let's fire everybody. I think it's very immature and junior. We have a club issue about how we perceive ourselves and about our anxiety about how we're perceived from the outside. We're not looking at the job in hand with any sort of professionalism and elite expertise. And we need to. And I think fans start to question this more and not just we're not playing, we're playing the wrong centre forward because the other options are not great anyway. I think we're realising yeah. this now. 
and that's the problem. And, and I don't see an exit from a playing perspective apart from the youth. And you should not be exposing youth to this. That is that is negligent. When you have a player you spend ten years developing, you have a bad six weeks, and you throw him in there to fix your all of your five year problems. That is negligent, and that could be a reason why some of the old duds are playing. Because I'd rather see them get upset than lose somebody who spent so much time developing. Yeah. So um, it's a challenge, mate. It's an absolute challenge. Yeah, Paul. Yeah. Look. Um... I'm with you on what you said, Elliot, in terms of these guys not being able to, not been allowed to buy or sell or whatever. No, I'd let them so sell. They, I wouldn't let them buy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. granted. Um, I don't know if they're capable of selling. Um, the one thing I'd say is, uh, and maybe you can address this, if if there's a signing that keeps us out of the relegation battle, um, but then again, it's back to your point, who would make that signing? Um, and, and it all... Like some of the moves we would look at, you know, could you get Rogers? Could you get like some of those things are very difficult to achieve. But getting, uh, putting your eye on a world class operations guy who knows how to run a football club, <clears throat> there are people out there that are affordable. They don't cost, you don't have the same commitments that you sign a superstar manager or a superstar footballer. There are easier, the move we need is the easier move to make a signing. You're hiring a professional in a business and there are some out there, somebody like a Rangnick or somebody else who runs a football club professionally, who's maybe a little further away from a director of football. That's the signing we need because we just need something on top of all of this to sort it out. We know we, uh, like that saying about, I don't. I can't define pornography, but I know when I see it. Well, we know what this is when we see it. It's a club that does not have the required leadership. They need to go out and sign the leadership, that person who knows how to do this. Everything else is fucking chaos. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't really disagree with that. I, so I'm just going to do this real quick. This is my manifesto in in two minutes or less, which will probably be twenty minutes. So you guys can go to sleep. I'm kidding, but like. And I want to be clear before I say this. If your way of being a fan is you want to watch fun football right now and you want us to sign big fun players right now, that is not the wrong way to fan. There is no right way to fan. As a fan, you can say, I want to be entitled. I want to watch fun football right now. As a fan, you can say, I want to get in the weeds on squad building. I want to really think about it analytically. You can do that too. You can do neither. You can just watch the games and never think about it again. There's lots of different ways to fan. My whole, quote, manifesto thing here isn't about fans. It's about what the club has to do if the club's goal is to be a title contender again, a champion. The Arsenal Football Club has every right to expect to win Champions Leagues and Premier Leagues. We are one of the biggest clubs in Europe, even now, even still. And so you have to get there. You're not getting there next season. Stop that shit. The goal for a director of football should be to win, to build a squad that can win a title. And to do that, you have to establish a time horizon. If you don't do that, there's no project. So let's say you have a time rise. You say, what are my checkpoints and how do I get there? Europa League football in seasons one and two. Champions League football in seasons three and four. A title challenge in seasons five and six. That's doable. So if you then say that's, those are the checkpoints. Europa League seasons one and two. Champions League season three and four. Title challenge season five and six. That is the lens through which all transfers, recruitment, and sales must be viewed. 
And with that time horizon, it becomes so obvious that re-signing Aubameyang is the wrong move. Because you look at your time horizon, you say, I'm putting 300,000 pounds a week into a 31-year-old. He's not part of this project with the, with the checkpoints I've laid out. So I have to cash in on him. Party. Thomas Party's a sensational player, and I'm glad he's at Arsenal. But buying a 27-year-old on 50 million pounds, who's going to be 30 and looking for a new deal in season three, when we just want to start pushing for Champions League football, again, doesn't fit the checkpoints. Willian, an obvious mistake. And to make the plan work, you need saleable assets. So you need talent development. You need players coming into their prime to take you to checkpoint one and beyond. But then they can be sold at a huge premium in their prime and replaced to take you from checkpoint two to checkpoint three. We have no conception of this currently. No plan. We keep doing shit to shortcut the checkpoints with no view of getting to the ultimate goal. And we've seen where that takes us. And it has to stop. Until there's someone at the club who understands this, who understands that there has to be an ultimate goal, checkpoints along the way, and a plan to get there, we're nowhere. We'll keep doing whatever feels good immediately to either placate the fans or try to keep us into whatever checkpoint we're in right now. Desperate grasp for CL football. Desperate grasp for Europa League football. And now where are we? A desperate grasp to stay in the Premier League. That's what this project gets you. And that's my manifesto. And unfortunately, I don't think the people at the club right now know how to do that. And that's why I would change them. Um, we're still going to bring Scott on for 15 minutes of stats. And that's going to make this a long one. So I think we should say goodbye. But I see Clive typing in the chat, which means he hasn't a, a coda to that. So Clive, a final thought? No, not really. I'll just, um, look, we've, we've had this discussion a few times. And um, I think we know why we're doing certain things. And we just need a clear way forward. I do feel COVID has killed us. It slowed us down. But even that, if I say that, it'd be me saying, would you have done the right things anyway? You know, I'm not so sure. And I'm, I need to be sure about what we're going to do next. And, I'm, and I've lost a bit of confidence in the club on the, their decision-making process. I've just lost a bit of confidence. Mm. And I'm just not sure if there's, if there's anybody in the club that really understands our problem statement and the depth of our problem statement. And it's a five-year problem statement minimum. I'm just not sure they're there. Um, I will just say as a caveat to your last statement, you do need some pillars of quality that can carry you along the road to create that serenity for those developing 22, 23-year-olds that look good from a like a Jota. You need those quality players to just carry them along when they have a bad day. And But that doesn't... That doesn't justify William or Cedric, mate. It just doesn't. It just doesn't in any yeah, way or form. That's fair. And that's what we. And that's what we need to kill. You, you know what, Clive? That. I would probably be less inclined to pick at every move we made if the people making the choices, making the decisions, seem to really get it. Because then you'd say, you know what? These guys get it. They're smarter than you. They know what they're doing. And I'm going to say something people are going to hate. I don't think these guys know what they're doing, and so all the moves become open to. To challenge, to interpret, you know, like the Thomas Party thing, we're not going to get in debate here, but what I will say is it is a debate. It's a debate that has very, very fair points to be made on both sides. I fall down on one side of it largely because I don't trust the people who are in charge of the deal, not because I know for sure what's right, because I know I'm not so arrogant as to say I know best. I just think if I don't trust the people making a decision, I'm unlikely to trust the decision. So let's leave it there and get, and get Scott in to uh, tell us what Arteta was trying to say with the statistics and uh, whether we're going down. We will get that answer from Scott. Tim's on Twitter. Still better. Thanks, Tim. 
My pleasure as always. Yeah, you weren't ready for it, were you? Uh, Clive's on Twitter at Clive. No, I was, it's just my, I've got I've got a dodgy mouse. A dodgy mouse. Okay. Yeah. I thought you said a dodgy mouth, and I was going to say, oh, that I think you have a lovely mouth. Oh, what did I just say? Oh, what? Scott. Scott's coming up next. Scott. Clive, Clive's on Twitter at Clive BFC. I just went off the road. Thank you very much. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, pause. You sure have a pretty mouth. I did go there, didn't I? All right. We're going to take a break and come back with Scott, who will hopefully take this to a much more anodyne place. Stay with us. Fresh off the most awkward outro to the first section, we can do hopefully a less awkward intro to the second section and final section of the pod where we discuss the statistics which are more relevant than usual because the manager's been talking about them. So here to tell us what he meant uh, or what he thinks he meant is Scott. You can find him on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Yeah, Yeehaw, indeed, my man. All right. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you the when easy... the manager leads us from something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you the easy question. That is simple and easy. Just throw it to you. Lay up, softball, whatever you want to call it. What the heck was Arteta talking about? Um, I, I think he's talking a bit about expected points and how that feeds into whether a team should or should not win. I always hate using that term because there's so many confounding things that go into determining should or should not. But you know, I did go through and look at it, and for the most part, the the numbers that he mentioned, while some of them are quite a bit off of what I have, um, they do in general match what they they said. So you know, looking at the the chances total created um, versus Everton, you know, Arsenal probably um, win that you know more often than not if you run the simulation of the total chances. But I think that a lot of that goes down to to game state, and I think that can be um, a big thing for a lot have been what has been said um, for the last couple matches for Arsenal. So yeah, when I looked at this, Arsenal are 62% to win. Um, I had Matt um, Giant Gooner um, pulled the stuff from StatsBomb for me, and they had it at 52% for Arsenal to win. But you, know, you look at the actual race charts, and Everton basically stopped shooting after they get the second goal. I think they have you know um, two shots total after that. So yeah. it's really, you know, when you, when you don't try to score, you're not going to rack up chances. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, we've really learned when we, we talk about game state is that when teams are ahead, they are very much just basically looking to protect what they have. Um, and I think you could say that in this match, Everton didn't create a ton and didn't look like they were going to create a ton. So I think it was probably their best strategy was basically to shut up or shut down things and basically just try to protect the lead. Um, they did a pretty good job of keeping Arsenal from creating anything of note. Um, almost everything is medium or low quality. And that ended up being a, a really good chance. So I think the biggest thing that I have kind of, uh, I guess, a, a fight about or, you know, uh, the argument is, you know, where he talked about Burnley and Tottenham. Um, I think those ones are, again, huge score effects. And my numbers are are way different than what he says. I think he was saying that there's a 3% chance for, for Burnley to win, um, which is, you know, pretty low for me. I had that one at 24. Uh, Statsbomb had it at 21. Uh, against Spurs, he said 7%. Um, but both me and Statsbomb said about 19%. So I think a lot of these, even, even not considering game state, I think he was definitely overselling what he did 
um, or what Arsenal's chances were in those matches. And, and, you know, he's ignoring some of the matches, you know, like Southampton where Arsenal were, were handedly beaten on chance creation. And, you know, of course he didn't include that one in his analysis of how things are going. Yeah, because he got a point there that he didn't deserve. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, there's, there's been chances like that all the time. You know, Leeds is another one where Arsenal definitely didn't deserve a point and got one. Um, I think more often than not, you you look at what Arsenal have done this season, and we are are very deservedly in our spot. Maybe you know, maybe you could say that you know we could get a few more points. You know, yeah, you he's know. he's doing what you might call p hacking, right? Or like yeah. or or like uh, uh, certainly cherry picking because. You could even look at Arsenal's win at Old Trafford, and if you just want to play the data game, you could say we didn't deserve to, to beat United Old Trafford, which is our last win. So, you know, I mean, you could really pull it apart. I mean, game state's a big factor here, though, right? Like, it, it is simply the case, in my view, that when we get behind, teams know we won't hurt them and play that way. It's very much that way, too. So, yeah, I mean, I think Wolves is a really good example of that match as well, where they got ahead and they looked like basically every time they wanted to go try to counterattack us, they could have had, you know, a, a very good chance of scoring. Um, basically, they decided in that second half that they weren't going to do that for some reason. Basically, they just wanted to protect what they had and they didn't feel threatened by Arsenal. And I think that's one of the big things is teams don't feel the need to add on against Arsenal. Um, yeah, cause you look at the, the XG difference for Arsenal's matches, there aren't too many where Arsenal just absolutely get blown out. Part of that is the tactics of Arteta where he really does try to keep things close. Um, there's really been just the, the two matches where Arsenal, I would say have been blown out where that's, you know, where it's uh, more than a goal or more than one XG difference between. So that's uh, Liverpool and Leeds. So yeah, everything's been relatively close. But that's where you really get um, attacked by the, the variance gods where, you know, a couple bad things where, you know, they finish things. Arsenal don't finish things and things really go against you. So it's the, the same. Or it's almost the exact opposite where Arsenal have only blown out Fulham so far this season and everything else has been less than uh, one goal difference between each team or one expected goal difference between the teams. So for me, that's the, the biggest thing is that when we are better than teams, we don't go out and really dominate them and basically, you know, stomp on their throat and kill them. And when teams come and score against us, um, we don't do enough to get things back in. And, you know, we've been on, we've given up a lot of early goals this season. And I think that's been a, a major factor for why we can't get the points that, you know, we feel that we deserve for how good this team, you know, maybe is. Cause I mean, I, I think it's not, controversial to say that this is a, a, an upper half you know talented team um I, my my opinion on them has changed quite a bit but i think that it's probably closer to you know ninth best team in the league maybe seventh but definitely not you know 15th or something like that so it's yeah i, I think there's a a pretty good argument to be said that arsenal are better than where we are but our performances aren't massively underperforming where we are on the table right now yeah I mean, that's scary. So that leads to the question, can we be relevant? I mean, not can we. Can we's dumb. I mean, we, we can win the league. Um, can we be relegated realistically? <laughs> I mean, still realistically, no. That's that's still one of those things that I, I think that Arsenal are still relatively safe. Um, I have it at just over 4% now. So, I mean, it is rising, and that is concerning. I mean, we do need to see some performances get better to really start believing that this team is um, as good as what the models think they are. Um, 538 has us at 3% to be relegated. I mean, part of this is that 
the reason I don't feel more nervous is that I think that there are some really bad teams in this league. Um, so that really will help Arsenal to um, not get dragged into that. I mean, it's certainly possible that Arsenal could finish in the lower half of the table. But I'm, I'm fairly confident Sheffield United right now is going to be relegated. Um, I think that there's a really good. Yeah, I think there's a really good chance for Fulham. Uh, West Brom is definitely in trouble as well. Uh, Burnley is still not very good. So I think that, you know, those teams are really, really going to make it so there isn't a, a crazy battle for the relegation spots. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Having said that, so this is kind of interesting, Scott. Uh, we play Chelsea next. We'll lose that game, of course, because that's what we do. I mean, we might not, but, you know. And then we're at Brighton, who are good. I think they're good. Um, I, I mean, mean I yeah, know I think so, too. kind of good. And, like, at Brighton. So, like, if we lose our next two, we will be behind Brighton. So that drops us to 16th. And Burnley, with two games in hand, are currently beating Wolves, and their run after that is Leeds away, Sheffield home, Fulham home. They'll probably win two of those three. So while I'm not saying we're going down, if we lose to Chelsea and Brighton, we will almost certainly be 17th through match day 16. That's crazy. And yeah, and it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be scary. It's going to, but I think it's still going to be, we're, we're going to pull through okay. But yeah, it's definitely going to start getting hairy and we need to need to see the results start turning around. If West Brom were on like 11 points or something, I'd be a little nervous. Um, but like, I, I guess it depends. Fulham are playing a lot better. I, I mean, I guess this is what it boils down to, right? Like, can we fall below Fulham? I don't I don't think so. And what's going to be really interesting is if Fulham have Southampton next, you'd think they'd lose that. They're then at Spurs. You'd think they'd lose that. Then they're at Burnley in a game where we probably want Burnley to win because, you know, then they've got Chelsea. Then they've got United. I mean, Fulham could be pretty much down by the time they play West Brom um, at the end of January. And then they get a run where it gets a bit easier for them. Not that anything's going to be easy for them. I mean, I can't believe we're discussing this, but like... Exactly. And I think the other thing, too, is Newcastle and Crystal Palace aren't great. Um, I think Arsenal are better than them, even in our current state. So I think that, you know, if, if anybody's going to get dragged into a fight, we might, you know, have some other teams that will get dragged down with us so we can have a few more teams to, to really kind of rely on taking the fall for us. Mm, yeah. Well, um, so, I mean, do you want to dig in a little bit to uh, sort of statistics about where we are, attack, defense, individual players? What are some of the things right now that are jumping out to you in terms of just the underlying metrics behind our performance? I mean, it's it feels like a, a broken record, but it's it's over and over again. We're not getting enough shots. We're not getting shots in good enough locations. So if, especially if we're going to be a low volume team, we need to be a really good shot quality team. And Arsenal are basically bang average for our shot quality. Um, so that becomes a real problem when we are, you know, on the, the bottom half of the table in shot volume. Um, you know, it's, it's a chicken and egg thing. It's like, are our strikers bad or are we just not creating enough for them? I think yes to probably both right now. I think everybody is just really kind of failing. I don't have too many major concerns about the defense. Um, I think it's been good enough. We've, we've held teams to, you know, at, at least what they've done averagely expected, um, 
coming up against us, maybe a little bit better for certain teams. But some of that, again, is we let teams score easy and then they don't really need to keep attacking us. Um, so, I mean, I think that is always down to where things are, is that Arsenal don't create enough. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I, I, mean, I think is what we said earlier. But it's like my major problem is that Arteta feels like he has kind of underdog tactics where he wants to limit the number of chances for both teams. And he, I guess, hopes that our our forwards are going to be better at finishing than the other team's forwards. But when you do that, you really do. You're asking variants to bite you in the ass. So that's something that I, I would like to move away from. I think it's been fine when we play against better teams. And I think that's one of the things that kind of colored things when we went on that great cup run is that this is a good strategy when you are the underdog, but it is not the right strategy for teams that you should be better than. Um, that's just inviting, you know, luck to go against you when you need to kind of overwhelm things in a low scoring sport like this. You need to, you know, make it so a couple bad bounces don't kill you. Um, you know, that's where, you know, you turn, you know, draws into wins and, you know, losses into draws where you can just, you know, kind of overcome some of these, you know, bad, you know, bad, bad luck where, you know, you get a known goal or, you know, you have a, a fluky goal that's kind of scored, you know, like the, the sun goal that's out there. So if, if we could actually go and create more, I think that would balance out some of this bad luck that, that Arsenal have had because that's just a, a major issue right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's weird is that I feel like we're in the position we belong in. Usually when big clubs wind up in a position like this, it's partly through playing badly and partly through running a little cold. And I think that's what Arteta was trying to say. But Scott, for me, I don't think we're in a false position. And that's why I think it's a little bit scary. I mean, how how much of a false position is this statistically in your view? I mean, a little bit. I mean, I think right now I have Arsenal as like the 10th best team when I, my model looks at them. So we're about five points below, or you know, five spots below where we should be based on where the model sees us. So it's, you know, the performances have matched pretty well with where we've been. Um, you know, looking at we were last year, you know, maybe that gives us a, a little bit of a, a boost to say that this team isn't as bad. And I think, you know, Looking at the the names on the roster, we, I think we can all agree that say that this is a, a team that should be better, and you know it's it's one of those things that Arsenal have been somewhat unlucky. Um, we are finishing below our xG, we are finishing below our post shot xG, but you know even if those were absolutely even, you know we are bang on for where we were supposed to be. That might turn one loss into a draw, or it might turn. Arsenal really don't have very many draws, so it's it's not really like these are the things that are keeping us from accumulating a lot of points. And it's not something that I would say that Arsenal are incredibly unlucky right now. It's yeah. I mean, we're, we're just a few goals behind and we are not just a, a few goals from being in, you know, the spot that we think that we should be. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the question then Scott, and, and I think we can sort of leave it here is what's a realistic goal for Arsenal now, other than just avoid relegation or is that it? I mean, the Europa League spots are not beyond us mathematically. If we started playing like the club we are, and if results normalized across the league generally, are those spots still an outcome we should be? I mean, we should, of course, we should be shooting for winning the league. But like, I mean, you get what I'm saying. Like, is there is there a statistical case for the Europa League being possible if we arrest the decline, or is it 
really beyond us at that point, even even to shoot at this point to shoot for that. I mean, it, you know, technically it still is. The only problem is there's so many teams between us. It's really hard to say, you know, if we were in, say, 10th place and there's, you know, we only have to come over three teams, but we're in 15th. So that means there's, there, you know, the season is not long enough to really get a gauge of who is the best team or, you know, to actually have things fully even out. You know, the table still does lie in the sense that, you know, it's not a perfect reflection of team quality. So there's still a good chance that some of the teams above Arsenal continue to overperform where they should be. So even if Arsenal do get back into winning ways, you know, it's not necessarily a, you know, a perfect chance that all of these teams will, you know, fall off or do those kinds of things. So it would be Arsenal need to perform at an even higher rate than where, you know, we think their true talent level is to get back into there. So I guess what I would say is a reasonable goal for this season is really to kind of lean into rebuilding. We need to make a determination on who we want to be here next year. We need to make a determination on which of these kids actually has a future. We need to make determinations on who can we buy, who can we sell, which ones do we want to build around and do all these kinds of things. This is basically a, a free shot where, you know, the, the European spots are pretty much out of, you know, in, out of realistic, you know, realm. And, you know, if we start, you know, really start turning things around, maybe you change course again. But I don't think we're going to get relegated. I think that we need to just reevaluate all of our players and say, this is your your tryout for if you're going to stay or if you're going to go. I think that's really what we need to take this as a goal for this season. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll finish with this question for you because we opposed it to the main group or discussed at the main group. Would you let this team, Edu and, and Arteta, buy anybody in January? Or would you I, prefer that they are not given the, the, the purse strings? You know? I, I definitely would not make any sort of a short-term deal right now, anything that's trying to fix this season. Um, if you have a, a target that you've been kind of following and you think that you'll be able to get him at a reasonable price for you know January, which almost never is the case because teams are very reluctant to sell good players in January that are important to them. So that's the thing that I think, you know, Norwich is, you know, trying to fight for promotion. So are they going to sell us? Winetta or whatever, I can't pronounce the name correctly. I, I probably not. Not for a, a, a price that Arsenal are going to want to pay. Buendia? Th that makes sense. Yeah, Buendia. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so I think that's the kind of thing. It's like, you know, we, we could get Christian Eriksen on a swap deal, a, swap, a loan swap with, with Xhaka. I just and threw up in I, my mouth a little. It's like, what does that solve for next season? That, that doesn't solve anything. Uh, to me, if you, yeah, it's a guy that you want to be leading Arsenal three years from now. That's the kind of deal that you allow to do, but nothing that's we're trying to do a quick fix for this season. I think that there's been too much of that in our squad building and it just leaves us with pieces that don't match. We have players that, you know, fall out of fashion pretty quickly and it just leads to a bloated squad and budget and wages that are just, you know, not sustainable for our position. Yeah. So, yes, I guess the, the answer is no. I would not sanction any moves um, without really, really scrutinizing them if I was in charge of Arsenal right now. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I'm struggling to sort of understand what this season should be about 
at this point? I, I think, you know what, I think there still could be excitement if we start, you know, playing some kids and everybody kind of leans into accepting that this is this season is kind of thrown away. We're going to rebuild. You know, I'm not saying, you know, 11 kids, but let's let's, you know, put some guys out there every every week and see, you know, give them a chance to show what they have. Let's let's see if we can actually do something and, you know, make some determinations on, you know, the selling in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have to agree with you that like, I'd love January to be a clear out. I'd love the rest of the season to be a really good look at, at maybe more fringe players and see what we have. But like, I don't even know how exciting that is for me because I'm not sure the, I mean, Smith Rowe, sure. And Balogun would be neat if he's not already signed for another team come January. And like outside of that, who are we really excited to get more minutes for? You know, you know what I mean? So it's, it's pretty tricky for me to find find a path to to excitement here, but let, let's see. We'll see. I mean, yeah, and I, I guess I am really overselling the excitement part, but it is like we need to, you know, is is Ainsley Maitland Niles going to actually be a player that is good enough, or is he someone that we need to sell down the table? Is Reese Nelson a guy that is actually going to be good enough, or is he someone that should be sold? You're dead like, right now. Play- that that these are, there's lots of players on this team that are like I don't know. But we need to make a determination on so many of them. The players yes. that are in that twenty-one to twenty-four range, we need to make a decision now. It's and it's then, it's yeah. rare, Scott, that you get a. So the the reason it's hard to make determinations about your young players is it's rare you get to play them a lot. So you're judging them on limited data, limited exposure, or right? yeah, or against you know, competition that's well below right, Europa League getting, Cup yeah. stuff. We have the rare chance to play big minutes into young players and know by this summer, good enough, not good enough, and then make quick decisions because God knows that's what the club hasn't been good at. Well, good. You've uh, you've cheered me right up there. Scott's on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crap. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right, my name is Alex Smith. You can me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner, uh, where I have just uh, defiantly and confidently announced that we will be in 17th place after match day 16, and it all kicks off from there. Uh, we will have more tomorrow, because there's a game tomorrow, against Manchester City. And I have no doubt that everything will work out fine there. Knowing us, we probably will beat them because it's a cup. But I would take it. I would take beating Manchester City, wouldn't you? So we Every love day. you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. City Nil. Nice.